Well, hi everybody. Let's get the microphone pointed in the right direction. It's Toby Miller here. Welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. I'm in Floyd's Coffee Bar, and I'm with my old friend, my good friend, and very admired colleague, Eileen Meehan. Eileen, how are you? Great. Great to be here, and hi, everyone. <laughs> yeah, she just did her little Larry King way, because I had this funny, dicky little microphallic Larry King-style recording device. And uh, Janet... Sorry, Janet Wasco is the organizer of this event. She's somebody that you must have worked with and known for a long, oh, yes, long time. Yes. Could you tell us a little bit about knowing Janet, actually? Oh, absolutely. And together? Uh, when I was a first-year doctoral student at the University of Illinois Champaign-Urbana Institute for Communications Research, Janet was a dissertator. And she was driving across country in a little white rabbit Volkswagen car. And it was the first year of the model. And so the car did not work very well. <laughs> and <laughs> we were always glad to see Janet come through on her way to another archive and stop and stay over because then we could hear all about how bad the car was and decide <laughs> never to buy a white rabbit ourselves. The rabbit, by the way, is the name of that brand, I think probably only in North America. Oh, really? Yeah, the car oh, exists yeah. elsewhere, but it wasn't course, called yeah. that. But anyway, that's a wonderful story. So I, for some reason, I thought you actually studied together, but in fact, she was a few years Yes, she was a few ahead years of ahead of me. Right. Uh, and so Janet was our, as you know, it shakes out in terms of the people that I know from that period, all of us working together. Janet was our most senior person, and then uh, Fred Peaches and Jennifer Darrell Slack, and then me and Marty Allure. Mm. And we were kind of the core group that came together to create a, a newsletter that was actually an international newsletter in those days. It ran from 1981 to 1985. It was communication perspectives. And Janet was the person who kind of spearheaded the whole idea of uh, a separate, critically oriented communications organization that would bring in uh, media activists, media makers, researchers, and that eventually generated itself as the Union for Democratic Communications. Which is a wonderful organization, the only one working on the media in the United States that's really of any credibility, I would say. Well, that's very kind, because we struggle for credibility since most academic organizations don't believe you should have activists. They're not too sure about these uh, makers, and sometimes they're not too sure about us as scholars. <laughs> Eileen, what drew you to political economy of the media? What drew you to Illinois in the early 80s? It's kind of a funny story because on one hand there's a, a family story. Mm -hmm. uh, my parents immigrated to the United States from Ireland in 1950. Uh, they were both strong trade unionists. Uh, my dad led the longest cemetery strike in the history of the United States. Um, my mom was an active member of the Communications Workers of America. And so I came from a background where people were very interested in politics and economics, and they understood class. Mm -hmm. um, on the other hand, um, when I was looking for a doctoral program, uh, my master's professor, uh, Charles F. Hoban at Annenberg, had suggested the institute uh, because, as he put it, uh, Jim Carrey is there, and us Irish should stick together. <laughs> so I actually showed up wanting to study a combination of political economy, cultural studies, and social research. And the um, organization at the time of requirements was so open that I could do that, which I did, and was probably foolish because I was there for a long time. <laughs> but what's interesting is when I realized that there was a time when 
that alleged divide between political economy and cultural studies, which doesn't exist in my mind, yes. and I think doesn't exist in your mind. Absolutely not. It wasn't there. These things were connected to Illinois. They were. Um, there was. There were some fractures, though. Mm -hmm. uh, the Cary culturalists were very much uh, in denial about the importance of economics. Mm -hmm. They really saw American politics as a liberal uh, playing field that was. It would tilt every now and then in one direction, but overall, everybody had an equal chance. So it was interesting to see Jim bring that vision of the world into uh, cultural studies, idealist cultural studies. And then you had Larry Grossberg uh, over in speech communication doing a kind of combination of materialist cultural studies and structuralist cultural studies, uh, and with some suspicions about political economy as well. So our professor, Thomas Gubeck, was in essence uh, pretty much on his own. Uh, and while he thought of himself as being connected to cultural studies, uh, the cultural studies people didn't think that he was. Uh, but you know, I think many of us, because of our backgrounds and because of the close relationship between uh, theories of culture, theories of ideology, uh, theories of econo economics and politics, and many of us coming through that program did not see the divide that has been so famously played out yeah. in journals, symposia, you know, presentations where people, you know, thunder, yeah. but there's very little light. We've seen a little bit of it at this conference we're at, the What is Television, but not at a meta level and not in a really nasty way. Right. But it has been an issue, sadly, for 30 years at least. It has. But of course, if you, in Britain, you go back even further to the difference between two now defunct institutions, the Leicester School and mm -hmm. the Birmingham School. Uh, right. And that, 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 you know, just as an observer from a different continent, that was a real tragedy to see both of those programs go down. Absolutely. So, what did you decide to work on for your doctorate, Eileen? I decided that I would look at something which had interested me since I was an undergraduate, and that was the Nielsen Ratings Company. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had read selections from a hearing that was conducted starting in 1963, which closed up around 1967. And it was the first time that I'd seen questions not about are their measurements correct, which is really a question about when they tell us what they do, does it sound like social science? <laughs> Instead, this uh, congressional committee was going after what do they really do? And that is one of the few moments in uh, American media history where you actually get data about what a company does as opposed to what it says it does. And get that uh, long-term hearing was the basis of my dissertation and it'll, it allowed me to understand ratings in a very different kind of way. Not to talk about measurements and eyeballs and uh, what are the 18 to 34 year old white males in upscale households that subscribe to cable doing, but instead to talk about advertisers' demands, networks' demands, uh, continuity and discontinuity between those kinds of demands in the closed market where their selected monopolist makes decisions about how to manufacture these numbers, how to satisfy demand, how to keep the bottom line low so that you can get numbers that are acceptable to your clients and at the same time you don't have to spend a lot of money making them up. And those intra-class conflicts in a way are managed through monopoly. 
Absolutely. Interestingly enough. Absolutely. Because they are different subject positions being enunciated by, in most of the time, advertisers yes. and commercial networks. Yes. Uh, they yes. may have lots of things in common, but then they do fight over the numbers. So I guess what you, what you showed us or what you found out and what those congressional hearings learned was that uh, Nielsen is a judge, not a scientist. Yes. And let me go a little bit further. Mm. Uh, Nielsen is a purveyor of fruit. Uh-huh. If apples are not in season and you want apples, I'll get you apples and I'll charge you for it. You don't want apples? Okay. Strawberries? Sounds good to me. Let me go get you some strawberries. Uh, that's a very different way to think about these, these sorts of things. So when my students tell me you know, this was the most watched television program, millions of Americans, my response is, how do you know that? They say the Nielsen ratings, and I say, well, then we don't know that because the Nielsen ratings will not measure people that they cannot sell. Yeah. And they're making a judgment all the time about who their highest bidder is. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, where is the locus of power? And that's always shifting back and forth. For a while, there was some interesting influence being exerted by cable channels, cable networks, that were coming onto the scene that were not owned by the networks. Then you get the reorganization of the rules for how the broadcasting and other media companies work and the neoliberal legislation, the uh, uh, laws that made it possible for networks to own movie studios and movie studios to own networks, which had been banned. Um, When that reshuffles, then separate demand of cable goes away. And now you're back to the block that's broadcasting cable and the block that's advertisers. Yeah, yeah. And and Nielsen is the judge, but a judge for hire. Yes, yes. Selling the fruit. Yeah. So um, that happens to you. You discover this four-year set of hearings. Yes. You produce this dissertation. We're now mid-80s. Oh, dear, we are. Right. <laughs> Maybe a little later. Maybe a little later. So where do you go then? You've been here in the Midwest, in Illinois, doing this PhD. Yes. Yeah, so um, I immediately applied to places like, like University of Oregon uh, for jobs in California, and I get a job at the University of Iowa, which at least is five hours further west. <laughs> <laughs> but it's still the Midwest. So you, become a, you became a Big Ten gal, and it was hard for you to get out of the Big Ten. <laughs> <laughs> As a person who has a lifelong aversion to sports of any kind, <laughs> I don't know if I can claim to be a Big Tenner. Uh, but we moved up to Iowa, where it's just significantly colder than Champaign-Urbana, and Champaign-Urbana is cold enough for me. Uh, and we were there for seven years or so, and then uh, moved to Tucson, Arizona, the University of Arizona. So we went from negative 50 degrees to 120 degrees. <laughs> <laughs> and in terms of the intellectual environments of those places, uh, for people outside the US, uh, many may not know, many may know that you know Illinois has, for a a very long time been a very important center of communications and not just conventional communications unconventional in the in the Carey sense unconventional in the uh, Gubak sense unconventional in the Grossberg sense yes you know all different from the crap that is normally served up (laughs) Uh, Iowa 
uh, is also an extremely important center for communication studies here in the U.S., also yes. you know, well-renowned. What was it like being, were you the only PE person there? or I was the only political economist and yeah. I was the only leftist intellectual. Yes, so they really were liberal pluralists and scientific. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's it split between people who um, were very much in the tradition of rhetoric, people who were very much in the tradition of uh, film analysis, in the kind of Dudley Andrews, Rick Altman school. Right, aesthetics. Yes, and then a lot of people doing quantitative research on interpersonal communication, organizational communication, and uh, media effects. So they were a bit of a Noah's Ark. Yes. <laughs> uh, I imagine those two groups had very little to talk to one another about. It was interesting because we uh, socialized more at the level of um, where we were in the hierarchy. So everybody who was an assistant professor pretty much hung out together and got along quite well. Uh, and then you would have your contacts in the upper reaches. So uh, Michael McGee took a particular interest in me. He was a, a Marxian rhetorician, as he would say, but very much old classical rhetoric kind of stuff. Uh, he uh, gave a paper at a conference once called uh, The Whorehouse of Rhetoric. What's a nice guy like you doing in a place like this? Uh, a little insensitive to the issues of feminism at the time, to say the least. Just a bit. <clears throat> but you didn't have interlocutors in terms of your own intellectual projects, it sounds like. No, uh, and that's why uh, the, the people that I went to school became so important. Right. That's why the Union for Democratic Communications, and when I had the money and could go afford international travel, the political economy section in the International Association of Media and Communication Research, because it was in those areas that you could go, you could deal with people on a peer basis, uh, we could work back and forth on each other's projects, talk about problems, uh, talk about breakthroughs. You've got a, a fair hearing, tough questions, but honest questions. Yeah. And that's not always the case when you're going to the huge umbrella organizations like National Communication or International uh, Communication Association, uh, where it's, it's very hard to get a fair hearing. The body that uh, Eileen mentioned, IAMCR, International Association for Media and Communication Research, is the only really international one in yes. these fields. ICA is basically a, a US gab fest with a few uh, Northern Europeans. Yeah, it's getting better. It used to be a Michigan State University gab fest <laughs> with a few Northern Europeans. But they are trying to reach out, and uh, partly because we have um, many more students from Asia, uh, the, the ICA has more uh, Asian uh, Asian people who took PhDs in the U.S. and stayed in the U.S. than it, it right. accepted. So it's a little bit more international than it was. We're making little tiny, tiny, tiny... We're doing bee stick <laughs> images yes. with our fingers and thumbs. Uh, now, so you, then you take off to Arizona. Yes. And as you say, there's this 4,000 centigrade temperature difference. <laughs> um, and it's arid. And you were there quite a while. I was there about 15 years. Now, what was it like in that environment? Not, I mean, a, a well-known university, but not in terms of communications. Yes. Known in quite the same way as Illinois and Iowa. Yes, yes. And um, in Arizona, uh, what we would think of as communications was broken into three different areas. Uh, two of them in the College of Liberal Sciences, and then my unit, the Department of Media Arts, in the College of Fine Arts. 
where we were constantly being told by the fundraisers that TV was terrible, but they really love showtune theater. <laughs> so it was oh a kind of God. yeah, it was a really kind of bizarre situation. Um, Arizona, because it has no none of the pomp and circumstance associated with Iowa or Illinois, Arizona in many ways was a freeing experience. And I had good colleagues in the unit, especially Karen Deming, a well-known television analyst, a political progressive. Uh, uh, there were other folks. Um, but really where I connected in Arizona was with a group of people who were trying to create a uh, interdisciplinary graduate program in cultural studies. Oh, is that so? I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah. yeah. So my closest uh, colleague and intellectual peer there was Adele Barker, uh, who is a specialist in Soviet and post-Soviet languages and literatures, and uh, very much involved in cultural studies in the ethnographic sense as well. So she and I and uh, 10 or 15 other people uh, you know, politicked for a couple of years and finally were able to put together this graduate program, uh, which was all voluntary. Uh, nobody had an, a, a significant appointment in it, maybe a zero point, uh, and it was all on our free time, and frequently it was resented by our home units. But it was an exciting mixture of people from anthropology, hydrology, you know, uh, the different uh, national studies groups, uh, nobody from communications, which was odd, but so be it. And we had a great time talking through the relationships between politics, economics, culture, expression, and art, uh, coming from many different points of view, some politically progressive, some classically aesthetic. That was really kind of my home at U of A. Wow. And then you went back to the tundra. I'm sorry? You went back to the tundra, southern Illinois. <laughs> no, I, I, no? Had a, I had an interim in the swamps. You almost, I forgot, <laughs> I'm sorry. You, didn't you get... A kind of very prestigious named chair in the swamps. Yes, I Before did. the tundra. Yes, it was. <laughs> the, <laughs> this, so this woman moves so fast; <laughs> it's hard to track her down. I've got to tell you, folks, getting this woman in front of this microphone has not been the easiest thing in my life. Uh, but she's in there not because she's resistive, just because she's in demand. So off you go to, <laughs> so the desert to the swamp. Yes, I go to Baton Rouge to Louisiana State University. Uh, the Brown family had endowed a chair and they had given the Manship School, it, which was my unit, it had given the Manship School uh, the freedom to put the chair in any area. And as the dean told me, they figured they would never get anyone to endow a chair in political economy, so they thought they'd use the Brown chair. Isn't that marvelous? <laughs> yes, so I was the Lemuel Heidel Brown chair in political economy and media. Uh, I was the first and I may have been the last. Uh, after I left, I was there four years, and after I left, they searched. Um, a, a colleague who was there called me up to ask about some of the people who had applied, and we talked about their credentials and, and what I understood of their work. Uh, they did not hire that year, and I don't know if they've ever searched again. So I may have been the first and only. I'm hoping I was only the first of many. And what was it like there after all this time in Arizona? You were there four years. We were there four years. Uh, this was a very, very different because it was the first time I was in a professional school. It was a school of journalism and mass communications. 
and the undergraduate program was uh, had different foci. You could do PR, public relations, you could do advertising, you could do news, and you could do political communication. So I was in the political communication section, uh, but still, most of the, my undergraduate students were people who wanted to uh, be event organizers or be publicists or you know design advertising campaigns, uh, and occasionally I would luck out and get a journalist. And my hope then was that they would go on and do some little investigative reporting, but you never know. Wow. So that the thing about that very professional orientation is that it can be very frustrating and limiting, but you can also make a difference in the lives of people who are going to be working in the industry. Absolutely. And, you know, I was there during a period when the United States was uh, getting into lots of wars. And I had the, I had the gift of teaching the pro propaganda class, which was not required, it was an elective. Uh, and that was a class where we could start with wars that were so far away and so old that the students could see clearly the economic reasons for these wars. And so they could see that that war was about oil back then so far away. And then we would work through to the Iraq war. And it was they were very brave. They really tried to think through and see it. Instead of seeing it as a matter of national security. Yes. Because beyond their own chauvinism and the ideology of prevailing yes. at the time. And, you know, um, this, the southern part of the United States is our internal periphery economically. And so there are lots and lots of people whose families over generations have depended on the military-industrial complex, particularly the military portion of it. Uh, and so it was, it was quite something to see these, these students take that on and take it seriously and you know, really confront the everyday common sense that they had around them. Yeah. Yep. That's exciting and it's been a terrifying time. These people who've not, you know, not, they're not just the students who grew up only knowing Reagan as president. They're students who've grown up only knowing war against Islamic countries. Yes, yes. And it's very difficult to address in the classroom in the contemporary sense. Yeah. That was why the propaganda class with its historical focus yeah, it made it so much easier. They can distance themselves, as you say, as they look at the First World War, the Second World War, Vietnam, Korea, blah, 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 and then say, oh, how come we're suddenly thinking it's not about yes. economic imperatives? Yes. And people would actually say things like, my cousin's fighting there. I'm not going to, I can't talk about this in terms of oil. I just mm. can't. Well, it's great they can say that. They can get to a meta level. Yeah, you know, and that's, you know, and giving people the opportunity to think about the things that they're feeling. Yeah. Because these, you know, feelings do run deep and people are very concerned and the propaganda that we see is pretty thin. Uh, and now that we have our news sources differentiated so nicely from totally reactionary on Fox to just slightly reactionary on CNN, uh, you know, they, they get more of a variation in terms of the official line. And particularly when you deal with students in journalism, those folks are, are focused on broadcast journalism and print journalism, and they're following this across multiple outlets, and it, it's pretty impressive. Now, as I move back to the tundra... <laughs> as you move back to... And then she comes northwest, and she heads to Illinois again, but to a more southern part. Beautiful, absolutely beautiful part of Illinois. Rolling hills, beautiful forests, uh, large lakes, rivers, a lot of local farming, 
and a lot of local farm activism. So quite different from the flat plains of central Illinois with their icy winds. We only get snow like three or four days a year. This is Carbondale and this is Southern Illinois University. Yes. And what was it that attracted you there? The colleagues. Uh, this is the first time that I've worked at a university where I can go down the hall, lean into somebody's office and say, I've got a problem with this research. I've been looking at this data set, da 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 da. Lisa Bruton, Cinzia Padovani, I, uh, John Downing was there. He just recently retired, which means that he's teaching in semester at sea and he's taught in Denmark and in France and, and that's all in one year. <laughs> Manju Pendekor was there. Manju Pendekor was there and he and I go way back to the old UDC days. He was Dallas Smythe's student up at Simon Fraser and Tom Gubeck was his outside member of his dissertation committee. And like Janet, he worked in TV. Yes, yes. Now, I worked in telecommunications. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes. Uh, for two years in my undergraduate, I was a, a, an information operator. Uh, so I was one of those people who would say, directory assistance, may I help you? Were, you? were you one of those, I don't know whether this was still possible to do, but those women you see in the photographs who are sitting in front of huge banks <laughs> with power cords that they're dropping in and out of slots and with headphones on, did you have, didn't have that? No, this was oh, all mechanized. That's too bad. It, it was. You just sat there and your call popped in, yeah. <laughs> the light went on. But we did have phone books, which is such an anachronism now. When was the last time you looked up a, a, a phone number in a phone book? Oh, I hate to admit, a week ago. Wow. I still find phone books useful, though I recognize that they've just been gutted. <laughs> and now the print is so small. I'm, I'm transitioning to the internet, Toby. I'm getting better. <laughs> I looked at my hair cutter on the internet the other day. <laughs> so, that's wonderful. You finally got a, a whole group of people who are like the cohort you had in graduate school. Yes. Like uh, Marty and Jennifer and Janet and so forth, where even people who may, who may see things differently from you understand what you're talking about. Yes. And yes. epistemologically, you don't have to set everything out. Right. We don't have to sit down and decide that it's okay to read documents and not do survey research. Uh, the, the neat thing is that people are coming into critical research from many different kinds of, of foci. So that you've got Navatni Lawrence who's doing work on race and on uh, representation, but he's also thinking about class, he's thinking about the economic issues of who gets in, who gets out, who owned, what owned, and how things got distributed. Lisa Bruton, of course, doing tremendous work in uh, Burma about Burmese independent media. Uh, independent media in the Philippines and Indonesia. Uh, and we were just joined by Daphne Lemish, who does work on children and television in terms of social experience and expression. So it's a good, solid, active, lively group. Wonderful. And and I've not been to Carbondale, but... Well, I've, we have to fix that. <laughs> but I have heard it's beautiful. And it is gorgeous. You've, you've conveyed that. Well, now that we've got your geographical trajectory, more or less, <laughs> I made a few false steps on the way, but I ended up at the right place. Oh, I'm surprised. I you are really a good spy. I think you and I maybe met when you were still at Arizona. Yes, I think that was we when did. we first met. I think we met in a bar, unsurprisingly. <laughs> but I can't remember what city it was. I mean, I knew your work well. Well, and I knew yours, but, of course. Uh, in any event, so let's get on to your work, and let's talk about what you're doing 
now. now. I mean, you gave a brilliant plenary address yesterday, I oh, should say. Thank you, thank you. The last several years I've been fascinated by the impact of neoliberal policies on corporate structure, market structure, and uh, industrial integration. Uh, and so I've spent a lot of time looking at how the big six have varied, and I'm sorry to say big six, I mean the, the six uh, companies in the United States that control most of American television and um, most of mass market film, most of mass market books, so forth and so on. Uh, now it's more correct to say the big seven, uh, because General Electric, which previously owned 80% of NBC Universal, uh, sold out to Comcast, so that Comcast now owns 51%, but General Electric still owns 49%. And General Electric, unlike the other media owners in this country, General Electric is a genuinely large company, owning operations across multiple sectors, across global economies and national economies. So if you, Toby, when you get your country, if you want to have a national system of transportation and you want to put in a totally modern Air Force, you would go talk to General Electric. And General Electric could give you the financing, it could put in the system, it could put in um, all of the engines that, that you're going to use in your military aircraft, and it has subcontractors that can uh, arrange to have the airplane put together, and GE has its own unit that would go in and put in all of your airstrips. I mean, arguably the world's biggest arms manufacturer. Yes, yes, uh, certainly. And also one of the companies that bids successfully to make green electric grids in, in cities around the globe. Yes, they're very good <laughs> at this. <laughs> uh, and if you go to the website, you will find that, that General Electric is just a ordinary guy like you and me, and uh, it really cares about our future. <laughs> Do you remember when they had their eco-imagination oh, yes. campaign, and they had the lumbering elephant, yes. was meant to show that they really cared about the rainforest? <laughs> and it was not, it was not, you know, it was, it was just not a good choice. <laughs> it, that does give me hope, though, for my students in advertising and branding, because if they can come up with sarcastic comments like that and get away with it, <laughs> then we're all right. So, as you say, one could say the big seven because whilst Comcast has the controlling vote, General Electric remains very important. But it's, yes. it is a limited group, a limited store. Right. And when we look internationally, we're really only adding two more companies, Bertelsmann and Sony. And the only reason Sony is not a major presence in terms of the ownership of outlets in the United States is that uh, U.S. law still prohibits foreign companies from owning uh, television networks and television stations. Now, we both know historically that governments get around that when they want to. Rupert. <laughs> Rupert. Who <laughs> did actually have to become a citizen, but not in a hurry. And it was a very interesting deal because he bought his core stations for the Fox network when he was an Australian citizen yeah. and then was allowed to hold on to them until he was fast-tracked by President Reagan to become a US citizen and so when he had, for a certain period he owned these stations illegally and profited from them which in US law you are not supposed to do but 
some, some laws are for some people more than other people. The dirty digger. Yes. And of course, more in, not more interestingly, but also interestingly, the large array of Mexican-owned TV stations in yes. the southwest of the U.S. was yes. disrupted in yeah, the 60s so. and 70s through the application of, of this law. Yes. But yeah, basically, it's a, a Japanese company, a German company, and U.S. companies... If, if you consider Murdoch to be a US company, and it's complicated because it's got so many different corporate HQ, that do run the vast majority of book publication, newspaper circulation, and, and especially audiovisual entertainment yes, yes, yes. in the richer economies. Yes. It's fair to yes. Say. Yeah. So you're looking at how that power has become more entrenched. Yes, I think it's important for people to understand that what appears to be competition, because there's so many different brands, is actually being run as an oligopoly, because there's so few owners. And then tracing out the, the struggles between these companies, because they, they do compete to a certain degree, but because of the change in the law, they're also allowed to be each other's customers. So there's a, a tension between being number one out of the six and, oh, um, having that contract so that the other five are getting product from you and paying you for product that's running against your product or maybe the product you bought for them that you're running on your TV station. So American TV has gotten into this kind of mixed up jazzy situation that is much more interesting than when we had three nets and very strict rules about them being separated from each other. Uh, so looking at that and uh, I've been invited by some colleagues to go back and to look at uh, the gendering of ratings and the commodity audience in terms of new media, which is a project that I'm, I'm starting to research now. Uh, and I, in my presentation yesterday, I mentioned Dog the Bounty Hunter. I uh, have a, a contract to write an article about Dog the Bounty Hunter in terms of its uh, conventions so that in the Dog the Bounty Hunter program, which is about this fellow who is a bail bondsman, trying to catch people who have jumped his bail. Uh, he, they, they typically use an opening with a family scene, then you'll get a look at Hawaii as a paradise. Somewhere along the line, they demonize this poor, you know, ill, disorganized human being who couldn't make the court date. Uh, then they go out, then they strap on the armor, and they get their mace guns, and they go out in the van, and they capture this dangerous person who just turns out to be sad and sick. And then in the van, Dog gives the sermon in the van. <laughs> it's usually Dog, sometimes it's one of the other ones, where they tell him that if only they would let Jesus into his heart, he would be fine. And then it ends happily. The guy goes to jail, but he's let Jesus into his heart, uh, and the family goes home to celebrate. What a great show. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is called Equilibrium, Disequilibrium, Equilibrium. Yes, it is amazing how these <laughs> things recycle. <laughs> Hawaii is a beautiful place. A person's done a bad thing. The person's locked up. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Wow. So it is more chaotic this television landscape, isn't it? I mean, there may not be as many owners as there were, but there are many more thematically driven channels. The Spanish call them yes. thematic channels. I think of them as genre stations. Yes, yes. And they, they talk about their branding, as we heard this morning in the, the opening session. But it, you're really looking at 
uh, a generalization of the old television system. If you think of MTV when it started as dance party for teenagers after school, if you think of the, the uh, cartoon channels as Sunday and Saturday morning cartoons for children, you can see the logic that then works out into the channels that are for women, uh, that have all soppy movies, yeah, kind of soap opera -y. Uh, the channels that are about uh, cooking, uh, which now increasingly have competitions so that they can attract male viewers. And so you get that kind of thematic thing going on on the surface of it. Underneath, there's some very interesting programming going on because the caping to your theme is expensive. So that if you watch, for example, uh, Planet Green, which was started as the ecology channel for people who wanted to be more green, who wanted to learn green lifestyles, local uh, cooking and all these sorts of things. Now a large portion of its nighttime programming is taken up by UFOs and aliens. <laughs> and I'm not sure what they have to do with ecology, but I've learned all sorts of fascinating things about UFOs flying over the Florida Keys. <laughs> So you see, yeah, these ch the channels start out like Spike, we're for men, Lifetime, we're for women. Uh, and then once they capture a reasonable part of their niche, they start looking to build out into other parts of the audience. I'm really interested by stations that I watch a lot, HBO and Showtime, yeah. uh, where fairly clearly part of the model is to get black and brown men to pay money to watch black and brown men hit one another yes. by taking yes. over the boxing industry and televising it in order to provide subvention for white men and women to watch white men and women in high quality golden age drama. Yes, yes. <laughs> I think there's a lot of that in it. There's a lot of that going on. Uh, it's like when, if you look at BET, which began as black entertainment television, uh, owned by a, an entrepreneur and now owned by National Amusements, ultimately, as part of its Viacom CBS empire. Uh, BET, you would think, would be about black culture. Uh, and it is to a degree. It consistently runs black comedy programs with black audiences and black comics and the black comics all fall into the kind of genre of the hood. And so there's a lot of F word and a lot of B word and uh, all this sort of thing going on. Those uh, programs actually also attract a white male following, uh, partly because of the popularity of rap in uh, among young white males. Uh, but we also have to remember that rap achieved that when it was predominantly owned by Time Warner, which sold it to Viacom uh, subsequently. So th there's all kinds of interesting twists and turns, yeah. not just in terms of, of historical relations between the races in the United States and institutional racism, but also between these companies and, and their attempts to, to utilize a niche audience, but then to also sneak in the so-called broader audience. I was a little anecdote on that. I remember reading a variety story years ago when NBC bought Telemundo, oh, which yes. is uh, the second most important Spanish language broadcast network in the United States, a long way behind Univision, long, long, long way, but doing okay. Uh, and the you know, Anglo-Palante executive who made the decision mm. told the story to Variety of how he was going around the links with his golfing buddies, <laughs> and one of them turned to him and said, 
Are you really serious about this Spanish thing? <laughs> <laughs> Just wonderful. And for years, the chief of Univision couldn't speak Spanish. Yes, yes. So. Uh, globalization doesn't mean that all of the globe is, is invited to the table. <laughs> now, just getting back to the, the gendered uh, ratings and forms of carving up, understanding, governing, managing the audience yes. that you mentioned for the internet, it sounds like you're at the beginning of that research. Yes, just at the beginning. But what seem to be the issues right now? I think one of the issues is, again, as w similar to what we see with broadcast television and ratings, um, there is an appearance and a popular belief that the internet is open to everyone and that it's a free place where everyone can go and everyone can be comfortable. Now, we know that's not true. Uh, the, I think it's the National Telecommunications Information Agency in the U.S. says that it's the NTIA, you know, it's alphabet soup, it's hard to keep straight. <laughs> uh, that agency says that 40% of the population of the U.S. has no internet access. And there's nothing in the future that suggests these people will have internet access. Uh, and I think of my own little town, where in Carbondale, internet access is pretty good. But if you're 10 miles out of town, internet access is a very occasional event, uh, which sort of undercuts that whole model of in the future we'll all live in you know, beautiful settings in nature because we can telecommute to everything. Well, if 40% of the population can't telecommute to anything, uh, that dream is pretty well dead. So as I think about the internet, I'm thinking about things like who counts? You know, we know that the Nielsen Company is busy counting on the internet. Uh, it has a couple of different systems where it tries to track. Uh, now, obviously companies like Google can do this internally, Facebook can do this internally with um, much greater success and precision, but for companies that have sites and, and sequences of sites who want an objective number to present to their advertisers, and advertisers who are seeking an objective number to make a decision about where to put their advertising. Uh, Nielsen is in the position to do the same thing it did with television. As uh, before Nielsen and television, uh, now I'm, I'm blanking on the guy's name, Hooper, C.E. Hooper and the Hooper ratings for radio and then early television, and before Hooper, the cooperative analysis of broadcasting, which was owned by the Association of National Advertisers and the American Association of Advertising Agencies. Who had a bit of an interest in this. Yes, and that interest was not balanced by the broadcaster's interest, and so there's a, that's one of the reasons why Hooper successfully got into the business and monopolized it until about 1945, no, 1949, 1950. Uh, so I'm going to try to come to this and see what the dynamics are and it's going to take a while to dig it out. But with particular focus on gendered issues. On gender, gendered yes. Issues. One of the things about large countries and telephony, and I'm thinking of Canada, Australia, yeah. the US, was that rurality and the isolation of rural women in particular was a major policy concern in the early 20th century. Yes. That uh, women in farming areas would not have many people to talk to, uh, would lack educational and occupational opportunities and so the argument for cross-subsidy from mm -hmm. urban areas and from corporations of telephony was crucial to what became part of the expansion of distance education, yes. uh, what became yeah. obviously phone system networks for friendship, 
for assistance, for healthcare. I mean, all sorts of things all flow from things. those yes. logics. And I yes. think we, you see this when you, you know, when you think, read, and and think about Innes. Uh, and to be fair, Carey, uh, yes, who yes. on these issues wasn't just a Durkheimian. No. Jim was very solid on a certain kind of economic history. Yes, I think. Yes, and, and I think later in life, actually, more and more. Yeah, yeah. But uh, it seems to me that that model and the care and concern for rural Americans and those who may be isolated in all sorts of ways is not underpinning our policy in this area. Well, I think we, in the U.S. situation, um, I think we need to go back and, and look at the claims for care uh, because one of the things that ATT was quite able to do as it monopolized telephony was to not provide services to rural areas because they were too remote. And that's why you had small telephone companies like GTE, telephone cooperatives, so forth and so on. Uh, the early days of radio broadcasting, as RCA is attempting to gain monopoly control over all broadcasting in the United States, they figured they only needed three clear channel stations to cover the whole country. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. But that was what they were claiming. Uh, CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System, through a bit of a crunch into RCA's plan to monopolize, uh, and it got worked out that there would be two networks and there would indeed be a certain number of uh, channels that would have greater power, greater coverage, uh, and would be controlled principally by RCA or CBS because they would be able to serve the rural areas so that people who lived in farms in Iowa and Illinois uh, would be able to get the news, to listen to the weather report, to uh, get, be, stock market get stock variations. market variations, uh, listen to classical music, because obviously that would be an important public service to bring culture to the masses. Uh, and that rationale worked very well in getting the licenses and holding on to them for many generations. Uh, but the rationale was never acted on. Those clear channel stations were located in places like New York City, you know, Chicago. And whereas they did cover a fair amount of land that could have been thought of as rural at the time, the programming was completely oriented to the audiences that were being measured. And those were audiences that were bony fide consumers that had access to retail and that could afford to spend money ritually buying brands and impulsively buying new brands. And those folks were measured in the 19, late 1920s to the 1930s, the 1940s. They were measured by telephone interviews. Oh, miss, excuse me, Miss. Oh. Ah, Toby has just saved someone from a great deal of trouble. <laughs> yes, it's okay. She can leave her phone and her computer, but not her ID and her wallet. <laughs> no, she left her purse too. Uh, to me, the uh, internet generation is much more trusting than I was ever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so no, fair enough. I think you, you pulled me up on that point well. But I think I was being a little too literal-minded and trusting. Unusual for me. <laughs> well, well, yeah, but, you know, you, you had taken a larger block than the clearly, you know, capitalist United States, when you start adding in Canada and Australia and places that actually have some social policy based on something other than companies <laughs> making money, it can obscure the trends. <laughs> <laughs> 
So we've got about a quarter of an hour left, a little less. Okay, great. I'd love to devote that time, if we could, to alerting people to where they can read some of your work on this. And a book that I'd love to hear you talk about a bit is Why Television Is Not Our Fault, oh, which is a fabulous title, but I'm guessing you had to fight for, or maybe the marketers at the press thought would sell really well. It's, it's <laughs> got to be one or the other. Well, uh, Why TV Is Not Our Fault was originally going to be What Came After the Colon, and there was going to be this very I love the title, serious... What Came After the Colon. <laughs> sounds like some kind of you know gastrological surgeon's It's certainly memoir. more profitable than academic publishing. <laughs> and I forget what title I had, but I was talking with um, a colleague at... Uh, Louisiana State, and he said, well, oh, that, that first one just doesn't make any sense. You should get rid of that. Just call it Why TV's Not Our Fault. And I thought, oh, that's brilliant. So I decided to do that, and the publisher came back, and they said, great title, but let's have something after a colon, and the rest of the title is so long, I can never remember it, uh, and no one else can either. But they thought it would explain what I was trying to do. Now, of course, in academics, you have to try to move your books, right? And when I lived in Baton Rouge, I, I went to the local big box bookstore. I won't say which of the two. And now one. Now one. <laughs> and that poor one is, is tottering. And so I went and I talked to the woman who arranged their local events with local authors. And I, you know, I had my little you know, pitch ready and I said, hi, I'm da, da, da. And the title of my book is Why TV is Not Our Fault. And I'd like to talk about it here. She said, great. What's your book about? <laughs> <laughs> and I was stymied. I did not have the requisite second, 30 second plug. So I never got to talk about it there. You've got to do that elevator pitch. You know, Dan Schiller, in his chat with me. I was amazed at his capacity to give the 25 words or less account of every one of his books. He's, Dan <laughs> is amazing in many ways. <laughs> in any event, it is a fantastic book. Could you take us through it in terms of, you know, like, what is the fucking book about, actually? <laughs> <laughs> no, damn it. You've had a lot of time to think about it after oh, that yeah, you've moment given me in the a lot of whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I start off very simply um, by talking about markets. Uh, we hear a lot about markets, markets this, markets decide, why not let the market decide, the market always knows best, the market is always competitive. And this is, in the United States, is a steady drone in our everyday life. Uh, and I had studied as an undergraduate with a Chicago school, Milton Friedman style, political economist. Uh, and he taught a two semester class on markets. And we went through Adam Smith's market model for the first semester. We started with 15 students. At the end, there were five of us. Uh, you know, and so we, we, you could wake us up in the middle of the night, and we would say, many buyers, many sellers, easy entry, easy exit. <laughs> Caveat emptor. Prices always fall. You know, the whole series of dicta of Adam Smith's. <laughs> and we got to the end of the semester, and he looked at us, and, and he always wore a very nice three-piece suit, and he had a gold cross pen and a, a big smile. And he, gave us our, his, he gave us his biggest smile, and he said, well, you have mastered the liberal market model. There is only one thing I need to tell you before you know, we, we break for this semester, and I hope you sign up for next semester. The liberal market model, it has never existed. It never will exist. <laughs> See you next year. <laughs> so this was a Friedmanite who actually knew and told the truth. Yes, yes. Uh, a fabulous guy, a great analyst. And I was pleased to take several classes from him as an undergraduate. <laughs> can, you, can you tell us who this was? Oh, you know, I'm, uh, it was Dr. Miller. And can you believe it? In the, those days, 
all my professors were doctor last name, and yeah, I didn't know anybody's first name except my, my thesis Quite advisor. Quite rightly, he was, he was doctor. Yes. His first name was doctor. His first name was doctor. <laughs> so it should be. Doctor. Yeah. How else could it be? So he must have been professor doctor. I don't know. Hair doctor professor. Hair doctor, yes. Anyway. So we start out the book by, you know, saying, well, you know, television is presented to us as our window on the world, as a mirror that reflects, you know, who we are and what we are and what we feel. And it's very competitive. And it, com you know, these television uh, networks compete for us. Yep. And da 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 da. So, is that true? If we take, you know, the market model that Adam Smith articulated, can we fit television into it? And I just go through each of the dictum and talk about how it doesn't work in television. You know, there is no competition. Three companies is an oligopoly. Six companies is an oligopoly. Oligopolists do not compete. No one is trying to push anyone out of the business completely and bankrupt them. Uh, and there are good reasons for that. For one, the laws don't allow them to do that. Uh, for two, uh, under the recent changes of the last 30 years, they can be each other's customers, so they can be each other's best friends as well as each other's rivals. What would have been called collusion. Yes. And been illegal yes. under antitrust legislation. Right. But when you've got antitrust, you encourage the trusts. And so the first part of the book looks at that and takes us through, you know, rethinking what we've been told about competition and rivalry and serving us, and then leads to the next question, well, what, what do these companies do? Uh, and to answer that, I look at each of the f major firms uh, individually, do a short profile, and then talk about how they really aren't television companies, they're media companies, and they're busy with strategies that move product across multiple lines, so they really aren't television programs anymore. They're products that you just move through technologies. And then the next chapter looks at how these companies are allowed to collude. Looks at the cross ties, the contracts, uh, and I take one season of programming and go through every single program that was run on prime time and show how the companies connect through those programs. Uh, and then the, the next chapter looks at the question of, well, how are you to act as a creative person in these circumstances? And I take as my example Star Trek. Uh, and explain the economics of the old Star Trek, which was only on the air for three years. 66 to 69? Yes. And which had a higher rating than any of the subsequent Star Trek series at all. <laughs> and they were, they were uh, turned out with, I think it was approximately a 20% of the entire U.S. viewing audience estimated by Nielsen. Uh, and those kinds of numbers are just not possible anymore because of the way the ratings are structured and the numbers of outlets that there are. So I look at Star Trek and I look at how do you create the next Star Trek? How do you make Captain Kirk that is not Captain Kirk? And then how do you make a Captain Picard that is not Captain Picard? And just look at the pattern of, of creativity with tweaks uh, at every level as you move through uh, the different Star Trek programs. And then I end with a glorious finish. <laughs> And it's short, uh, where I you know, pull it all together and come back to the central question of you know, why TV is not our fault. And each chapter actually does end with uh, some version of the phrase, and that is why TV is not your fault. Because we're basically being told again and again, to get back to your market refrain, that it's there because of what we like, we choose, we decide. It's our fault. And so it's our fault. We're constantly told, mm. If, mm. if you don't like all those uh, 
you know, CSI type programs, you should change yourself. What is wrong with you wanting to see dead bodies? I mean, get a life. You know, if, if you don't like Dexter, it, it's only there because you demanded it. Uh, and it doesn't take a genius to figure out from our everyday experience that we have no input on this. And so the central role of the Nielsen ratings to make it appear as if all normal Americans are of course watching Dexter uh, through all these venues it becomes you know, one of the, the keys into that, that yeah. whole argument. Making us responsible and creating a notion of us that's of a very partial kind. Yes, and it also does a lovely job of uh, getting these companies out of any sort of public responsibility. It's always fascinating to me that the same companies that say they have nothing to do with programming because we make them put those shows on, turn around to advertisers and say, we can brainwash these people, you wouldn't believe, they'll buy it for breeze, anything, you know, totally worthless products, we can sell it, give us your money. Now I, I wonder if in the couple of minutes left to us we could talk yes. about another of your books uh, which was co-edited yes. uh, on political economy of the media from a feminist perspective. Yes, we called it Sex and Money and that uh, Ellen Reardon and I uh, put that project together. Uh, we wanted to have people from different kinds of research traditions look at the relationships between gender, culture, and the money, the economics, political economics. And people came through magnificently. Uh, it's a great book. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That's because of the, the authors. They did outstanding jobs. You know, from Ellen Balka talking about uh, telephony and the, the change in telephonic work for women in Canada with the, the rewrites of the telecommunications laws, uh, to Fred Fiege's talking about the corporatization and commercialization of certain kinds of gay identity. Uh, he had a great title, but the publisher said it was too long. Free at last, free at last, thank God almighty, I've got my American Express card and I'm free at last. <laughs> <laughs> and there are all kinds of points in between as, as people look at the way gender works out in newsrooms, the way that it works out in uh, information industry uh, work, the way it's portrayed in advertising, portrayed in magazines targeting Latinas, on and on, many different kinds of topics, but all united by this recognition that if we're going to understand gender, we have to understand the cultural dimension and we have to understand the political economic dimension that pull together and then produce these products targeted towards the woman, whoever she is, <laughs> that nobody's ever met. That no one's ever met. No one's ever met. <laughs> I really hope you do another one like that. Well, Ellen and I have talked about it on and off, uh, and I think we're actually at the, a point in the research where it's time to come back to sex and money as a topic and see if we can't trace some of the new things that are happening, particularly with the new media and with um, and it, the interesting phenomena of women utilize, utilizing commercial mediated products. They're designed for consumption by men, but women using those products to both create their own cultural materials and to generate social ties uh, and frequently doing this through the new media because it's so much more, it's much easier to do and it's much less expensive to do. Uh, 
than when back in the days when my students who were interested in fandom were actually mailing things and xeroxing them and binding them. I think you and Janet are very inspirational figures for a lot of us in political economy because we can, apart from anything else, mention you and Robin Anderson oh, okay. whenever we're told it's a boys club. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I had a very interesting experience um, a couple of years ago. I was a, a member. I was invited to uh, participate in this pre-conference. Uh, session it was all day and it was it was kind of a celebration of Bob McChesney's work and Bob's done a lot of interesting work uh, but when I looked around there were there were like two women in the room me and a graduate student and the woman who was the graduate student I introduced myself to her and she and she looked at me and she said you know uh, gee I always thought only guys did political economy and I think it's one of the, the untold stories, and it reflects uh, you know, some of the institutionalized sexism uh, that we all experience, is that there's a tendency to discount women who do work that isn't in some way uh, cultural, social. If you're not doing kids in TV, what are you studying here, young woman? Uh, and that's kind of an odd thing. I find it particularly strange, but when you look at a field that is so many women, like cultural studies research, especially in textual research, it's always interesting to me that the, the top three people who will get mentioned are almost always men. And yes, you know, you know John Fisk has done tremendous work, very interesting figure, but there are other people and uh, certainly there are a lot of women who've done a lot of work in that way as well. Yeah. And that's when you look at these colloquies and journals between, oh, political economy and cultural studies beat each other up. It's typically guys. Uh, and then uh, you go to a conference and it's the women who are talking about uh, connections, connectedness, you know, working together, looking through this stuff. Maybe I just go to the wrong coffee right. sessions. There was uh, an Angela McRobbie versus Nicholas Garnham yes. spat. And that was particularly unfortunate because feminism took a hit in that from the Garnham yes. side, I yeah. think, uh, as did culturalism in, in regrettable ways. I mean, I raised your three names, uh, you and Janet and Robin, uh, jocularly, but it is a very serious point that you mentioned that, like a lot of academic fields, this is one that is still very dominated by men, even though it's not exactly the most important field scholastically, sad <laughs> to say, but it is very dominated by men. It is pretty white. Uh, yes. We've had a, a definite uh, predominance, for instance, of white plenarists at this conference. Yes. And uh, those are things that you can't just fix accidentally. You have to make definitive decisions to include new voices yes. uh, and encourage people and learn from them. It's not just a matter of bringing them in, it's that you get transformed by others. Exactly. And, and that's what I think your book with Ellen Reardon did so brilliantly. Oh, thank you. Thank so, you. I'm glad to hear you're thinking about volume two or whatever it gets called. Maybe money and sex and money and money slash money and sex. sex yeah. Or free, free, free at last. <laughs> well, Eileen Reardon, thank you very... Sorry. God almighty. <laughs> I just put the two of you into one person. That's it's okay. the Irish. It's the Irish. It's the Irish. We'll get much more work done this way. <laughs> <laughs> Eileen Meehan, thank you very much for taking the time to come into the pod. And I hope that when you've gone further down the path yes. with your research on gender and the internet, you'll come back and join us once more. I would love to. Thank you, Toby. It's been delightful.